0: and uh, preach. Thank you very much. I believe the youth are going to go out, It's the year 7 and 8, if you're in youth, head out to the back, you guys are going to go upstairs this morning. So, we're continuing Romans, and I've got some good news for this morning. The good news is that this week is the last week of the bad news, before the good news which solves the bad news, which is really good news, right? So... Let's give thanks for that. We're looking at the final part of the explanation Paul gives of the big problem that the gospel comes to save. How is the gospel this power of salvation? Well, here's the huge problem it comes to solve, which shows its power to save. We're looking from chapter 2, verse 17. We've got a Bible you might want to open there. And I think the section we're going to look at today can be uh, kind of summarized by an English saying, which says "You you can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig which I thought was a really well-known saying. I've since found out it's not, but I had heard it before. The idea being, you can put lipstick on a pig, you can put a bow on a pig, and pearl necklaces, you can try and beautify it, but it's still just a pig. Um, As I was researching this, I discovered that in 2015, Russian Vogue magazine had a cover article, which was pigs in jewellery. And they put diamond earrings and diamond necklaces and such like on pigs. I'm not showing the pictures, it was a bit cruel to the pigs, actually, I thought. But the point is, you can put diamond earrings, diamond necklaces on a pig, it's still a pig. And today, Paul's going to show us, you can stick some external things, uh, some law-keeping, some kind of important things like circumcision, in his examples, but you can still be a sinner that needs saving. You can have all the external stuff and still be a sinner, actually, who's under the wrath of God, not who's known the power of God, the uh, power of salvation in the gospel. We don't just need a, a few external things to help us in before God, We need a total, utter transformation from the inside out. That's what Paul's going to help us to see today. Let's just quickly recap, though, what we're seeing so far in Romans. You know, Romans is this sustained argument. Paul's reasoning with us, pointing point after point after point. And so each time you come back to Romans, you should think of it like you're watching a series on Netflix. And often a series on Netflix with a continual storyline starts with a what happened before, doesn't it? You need to know what's already come. So at the very start of Romans 1, we saw Paul is really eager to preach the gospel in Rome. And the reason he's so eager is because it is this power of God for salvation in which the righteousness of God is revealed. But he knows before he can explain that in a way we will really get it, he needs to tell us the problem that the gospel comes to solve. He needs to tell us about the plight from which we actually need saving. It's a bit like the people he's writing to are sitting in a big room, maybe even like this, and all the lights are on. But actually, they don't realise, really, they're in darkness. And he goes through step by step, and as he goes through, more and more the lights are going off until they realise they're in utter darkness and they need help. So the first half of Romans 1, he explains that the gospel is needed because human hearts worship idols, worship created things rather than God, the creator, and that leads us to a life of sin. And you can imagine at that point, half the lights in the room go off. A whole bunch of people, probably the Gentiles being who people assumed, are plunged into darkness. And there's people on the other side of the room still in the light, and they're going, yeah, those people are terrible in the darkness. All that stuff they do, they worship the stuff down here, they don't worship God. But then Paul turns to them and says, you guys who were judging the guys in darkness, you're just as bad, because you do the same things. He shows us the gospel is needed by those who judge others and think they aren't guilty of sin, because judgment according to works will show that actually they are. And so the second half of the lights goes off. Everyone is plunged into darkness. But then, here's where we get to today. A few people pipe up. And they've got torches. And they switch on their torches and they say, okay, Paul, yeah, yeah, we're a bit in the darkness. We do some of that stuff occasionally. But as they would say in this text, but we're Jewish. We've got all these privileges from the Old Testament, what God's given to us. And Paul says, no, no, that still doesn't do it. The gospel is needed by those who think external things will save them and protect them from the judgment of God because actually they won't. Even the torches go off. It's utter darkness because we need the light of God to break in. And so the is to us that Paul's going to bring in that last bit as we look at this, is a challenge to us of are we relying on external things to save us and to protect us from the wrath of God? Are we just like a pig with lipstick, which actually is still a pig, or have our hearts been transformed from the inside out? Does our hearts and do our lives show the evidence that our hearts are being transformed by God? Have we truly experienced the power of the gospel in our own lives? There's a challenge for us, but there's also a challenge as we think about mission in this year of mission, which is, are we believing that our friends and our family and our colleagues and our neighbours really need this? Or are we thinking, actually, they'll be okay, they've got some external stuff, they'll kind of scrape through? Or do we realise what every human heart needs is to be transformed by God? That they need to experience the power of the gospel, and that therefore what we're doing in mission is to tell them about the offer of God to transform their heart. So let's dive into uh, chapter 2, verse 17 onwards. First of all, we've got this immediate context, what um, Adid showed us last week, where the guys who are looking down on the people mentioned in chapter 1 are told, actually, you're just as much a sinner. You might be judging other people. You might think, I never do this stuff. But Paul says, actually, you do. There's a day every person will stand before Jesus, will be judged by him according to what they've done. And at that time, he says, you will be found wanting. And you can imagine that some of the Jewish people in Rome to whom he's writing would pipe up that point and say, but, but Paul, we're good Jews. We've, we've got the law. We're okay. That'll protect us. You know, we rely on that. That's kind of a shield around us. We'll be fine, Paul. Or we might say, but Paul, we're, you know, we're mainly good people. We good to do good stuff. We're, we're good Christians. We go to church and we pray and we go to connect group and we serve on a team. That'll protect us. We'll be fine. We'll be fine. But Paul doesn't seem to think so. Let's see what he says from verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law. and If you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He's addressing these guys who think that because they've got the law, they've got what God has said in the Old Testament, they are protected that this wrath of God might come, but they're kind of shielded, they'll be saved and protected by that. And he lists all the things they might put as, on their account as the things that will protect them. We're Jews, we've got the law, we boast in God, we know what God wants, we know and approve of his will, and it's all because they've got the law. And not only have they got it, they say, but also we use it rightly. We tell other people what to do, we teach it. We're a guide to the blind, we're light in the darkness, we instruct foolish people, we teach children They're saying, Paul, Paul, we're fine. We've got the law. We're safe. The wrath's not coming for us. And Paul kind of builds them up with all these things they might say about themselves just to utterly tear it apart, to utterly pull them down. He turns to them, he says, you teach others, but do you teach yourself? He starts alluding to the Ten Commandments. You know, you teach against stealing, but do you steal? Against adultery, um, adultery, but do you commit adultery? You tell people not to worship idols, but are you stealing and worshipping idols? And he gets to the point in verse 23 where he makes this final statement. In the NIV it's translated as a question, but it's better read, I feel, as a statement. He says, you boast in the law, you who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. They've got the law. And they're boasting it, they rely on it, they teach it, but they don't actually keep it. They don't actually do what it says. And he quotes in the Old Testament to support this. And quotes from Isaiah 52, and it's a passage where God's talking about the Gentiles who've come and invaded uh, the nation of Israel, invaded God's people, and about the fact that the Gentiles are blaspheming or dishonoring God's name. But here, he's applying it to the Jews. This is kind of really offensive to them. He's saying they're just as bad as the Gentiles in the Old Testament, actually, who were dishonoring God's name. They've put lipstick on the pig, but it's still a pig. They said, we've got the law, but they haven't kept the law. Nothing has actually changed inside. Their status as Jews, those who have the law, cannot and will not and does not save them from the wrath of God that Paul has been talking about. And It's the same for us. We might label ourselves, call ourselves a Christian, but that can't save us if all it means is that we go to church, or we serve on the coffee team, or we go to Connect Group and we read the Bible and we pray mean, it's just surface level, that won't do any good when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The question is, where's your heart? Does your heart love Jesus? Does your heart hate sin, hate rebellion against him? Does it love worshipping him and long to live his way? They say, Paul will be fine we've got the law. He says, "No, no, but you're not keeping the law. It's all just surface stuff. You're like pigs who put lipstick on. And they move on to another claim to protection. Paul moves on to talk about circumcision. In Paul's day, circumcision was one of, if not the key markers of being a Jewish person and being a part of the people of God. And it was seen as such a key marker, it was almost deemed to have kind of quasi-magical powers that would protect them. There were all these slogans about circumcision. One of them said, no person who is circumcised will go down to Gehenna, which means hell. They're saying if we're circumcised... We're saved just by that. That protects us. It's this kind of magic thing which is going to keep us safe from the wrath of God. They're saying, okay, Paul, maybe you're right. Maybe we occasionally do that stuff you talked about in Romans 1. We're a little bit like those people. But it's fine. We're circumcised. We're protected. We'll be fine. It'll be okay. But again, Paul doesn't agree. From verse 25, let's see what he says. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law... And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. They're saying, Paul, our circumcision will protect us. And Paul says, well, I don't deny it. There's some value, there's some importance in circumcision. That's kind of pretty clear if you read the Old Testament. It'll be hard not to admit that. But he knew that circumcision was always meant to be the outward sign of an inward reality. As John Stott on this passage, he talks about, he says, it's not a sign of obedience, it's about a commitment to obedience. He says circumcision is of value. He's kind of saying, well, you're right in a sense, but then he adds a condition. It's of value if you obey the law. And notice it's obey, not just know. He's just told them the important thing is keeping the law, not just having the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. What it represents isn't there, and so all its value is lost. It's rendered void if obedience isn't there. It's a bit like um, if you get a painting. Imagine you owned a painting by a very famous artist, and it's worth a huge amount of money. But then one day it's discovered that the little uh, autograph, signature in the corner, actually isn't genuine. The whole thing is proved to be a fake, because actually they study that little bit there, and show actually it's not real. In that moment, all the value is lost. Because actually the thing that thing was meant to signify isn't actually true. It isn't actually there. He's saying you can be circumcised, but if you're not keeping the law, it doesn't mean anything. Because circumcision was about this pledge, this commitment to keep the law and live in covenant with you, with God. Circumcision without obedience is like putting lipstick on a pig. And so he draws a conclusion. And it's kind of hard for us to understand how radical and offensive this would have been to the Jewish Christians in Rome to whom Paul was writing. He says, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? He's saying you he might not have the outward sign, but if he's got the inward reality, that's actually the thing that matters. He's saying that actually is a better thing. And then he gets even more offensive. He says, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law. So he who's got the inward but doesn't have the outward will condemn you. You have the written code and the circumcision, the outward, but break the law, not the inward. He's saying to them actually it would be better to be an uncircumcised non-Jew who keeps the law than it is to be a circumcised Jew who doesn't. That would be really, really offensive to these guys he's writing to. He's saying it's the inward that matters. And notice he says actually those uncircumcised people who keep the law will judge or will condemn you who are circumcised but don't keep the law. And that's actually the same word he uses in chapter 2, verse 1, when he talks about these Jews passing judgment over the Gentiles. They're there saying, yeah, we're going to judge and we're looking down on these people who are sinning. Now, Paul is saying, actually, the Gentiles who keep the law have the right to look down on or to judge, uh, to condemn the Jews who don't keep the law. The tables have been completely and utterly turned because what matters is what's inside, not just what's outside, not just what is surface. And so he concludes, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly or visibly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew. And here he's talking about a true member of God's people is one inwardly, secretly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. He's saying what matters is what's inside, what's secret, as it were, not what is outside, not what is visible and public to truly be a part of the people of God, and therefore be those who will be spared and saved from the wrath of God, who know the power of the gospel in their lives, requires something inward. He says it requires the circumcision of the heart. Circumcision was meant to be a sign of commitment to God. And so circumcision of the heart means a heart that is committed to God, which is orientated towards him, which loves him, which longs to and strives to live his way. And this wasn't a new idea when Paul talked about it. And it wasn't a, a new thing to expect would happen. This comes from the Old Testament in several different places. So one example in Deuteronomy 10, Moses, the leader of the people, the guy who brought them out of Egypt, the story of the prince of Egypt and stuff, he has given them the law. He's actually given them the second, second set of uh, stone tablets, if you know the story. And he says to them that God is calling them to fear God, to walk in his ways, to serve him with all their heart and with all their soul. He reminds the people of Israel how God chose their forefathers and now how he's choosing them. And then he says to them, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Clearly, the circumcision of the heart is the opposite of stubbornness. He's saying, have a soft heart towards God, be obedient towards God, love God. It's always been about heart response. Paul isn't saying anything new. And yet over time, God's people had made it about the externals that protect them rather than the heart transformation. And even as you look through this theme in the Old Testament, you find there are hints that actually humans won't be able to do this. Here, Moses tells them to circumcise their hearts, but actually we see it's not really going to work out. At the end of Deuteronomy, just before uh, Moses dies, he speaks to the people of Israel. And he speaks to them about what's going to happen in the future, basically saying, I've given you all this law. I've told you to you keep the law, then you'll receive God's blessings. If you don't keep the law, you could receive his curses. And he basically says to them, you're not going to be able to keep the law, and you're going to receive the curses. Now, one day God will allow these foreign nations to come in, to cart you off, to destroy your temple and your city and all sorts, to take them into exile. But he also promises that God won't give up on his people. He won't let go of them, that he'll call them back to the land. He'll make them his people again. And at that point, Moses says, and the Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul that you may live. Notice it's gone from, therefore, circumcise your hearts. Go and do this thing to the Lord God will circumcise your hearts. We find the same thing later in the Old Testament, that the prophets, the guys who come kind of around the time of that judgment, around the time of the exile, who speak as God's mouthpieces, his uh, kind of messengers to the people, they talk like this too. And One of them, Ezekiel, talking about that, exactly the same time of when the people come back from exile. He says, speaking for God, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Stone can't do anything, it can't respond, it can't feel, but flesh can feel and respond and act. And I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And all of these promises in Deuteronomy 13, Ezekiel 36 and Romans 3, they're all talking about, all looking forward to what God would do in Christ through the Spirit. It's only when the Spirit of God works in our hearts, when he circumcises our hearts, when he transforms us from the inside out, that we really have that circumcision of the heart that matters, that we really know we are part of the true people of God who will be spared from his wrath. So here in Romans 3, Paul's telling these guys, guys, physical circumcision, this isn't the marker. It's, It's not the thing that shows that you truly are part of that group, that you truly are going to be spared and saved by God. It's the internal love the internal commitment to him that matters. Circumcision was kind of the really relevant thing for uh, the guys Paul was writing to in Rome in the first century. For us, maybe it's things like church attendance. Maybe we put actually are, are hoping, I'll be all right with God, I'll be all right on that day because I went to church every week. Maybe it's serving. Maybe it's knowing some stuff the Bible says. Maybe it's helping people. Maybe it's having been christened, having been confirmed. Maybe it's just believing in God. We think that will get me through, that will be enough. Paul's saying, none of those things are enough. None of those things will save you when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ on that final day. What matters is the circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit. And so the obvious challenge to us as we wrestle with this passage today is, have our hearts been circumcised by the Spirit? Has your heart being circumcised by the Spirit of God, do you see in your life and in your heart the evidence that he has done that? Do you love God? And do you hate sin? Do you feel uncomfortable when you know you're doing things that aren't fitting with his way? But do you love it when you're able to gather with his people as we've done this morning and to worship him and to come and to adore him? If you don't, then you may be like a pig with lipstick. You've got the externals. It might look great. But behind it all, you're still a sinner who needs saving from the wrath of God. You need that total transformation. But the wonderful news is that is on offer to every one of us. The promise of Jesus is that as we reach out to him, as we trust in his promise and ask him to do that in us, he will rush in and he will do that and he will transform us. There's a challenge to us as individuals we all need to wrestle with. But there's also a helpful challenge for us as we're thinking about mission in our year of mission. Is that question, well, do we really get what our friends and family and colleagues and neighbours need? That they don't just need a call to live differently. We're not just calling them to come and join our club and be alongside us at church all week or start praying a bit or start reading the Bible a bit. Actually, we're calling them to be transformed by Jesus. To submit their whole selves, their whole lives, their whole being to Jesus Christ, who's now Lord, ascended seat at the right hand of God the Father, and to allow him to work in them and totally and utterly transform them. I just want to highlight as well the very last phrase of that paragraph, which almost looks like a slight kind of odd tag on, but I think is really important. Paul says of this person who's a true member of the people of God, his praise is not from man, but from God. He's saying this is true of the true believer. The only thing that matters to a true believer is what God says doesn't matter what anyone says about you. doesn't matter what anyone thinks about you. And I think that's put there because if your heart has been circumcised, you will look different. You will live differently. You will stick out. You will be an oddity in your workplace and in your neighborhood and in your school, your college, wherever it might be. And often people will not praise you for that. Sometimes people will hate you because you love Jesus and because of what it means to hate, to love Jesus. But Paul wants us to know that's Okay. If you are faithfully following Jesus and people hate you for it, that's okay. Because all that matters is what God thinks of you. And in those times, we've got to remember the voice that matters is God's voice, not the voices I might be hearing around us. Now, actually, sometimes God then uses our distinctiveness. And even the fact that sometimes the hatred of others doesn't affect us, God uses that to draw people to himself. Many make people think, what is going on? There's something real. There's something in the heart that has happened here. So Paul knows that the Jews in Rome are kind of relying on these things. They're saying, Paul, we're going to be fine because we've got the law. We've got circumcision. And he's saying, it's not going to be good enough. It's not going to do the job. The externals can't do it. He also knows that he's just said some pretty offensive stuff for them. He's basically said they're like pigs in lipstick and that they're not going to like that. And so in the beginning of the next chapter, the first eight verses of chapter three, he gives uh, kind of two sets of objections that people might bring against what he's just said. And just because of time, we're not going to look at them in detail today, but let me quickly zip you through them and you can read them later in the week yourself. The first one are a set of objections based on the Old Testament and the covenant, the agreement that God had made with the people. They're basically saying, surely the Old Testament says there's some advantage to being Jewish. They're saying, Paul, you can't get rid of all of this. There's got to be some benefit to us of the fact we've got the Old Testament. We've got this covenant with God. And he says, yes, absolutely, there's benefit for you. But the benefit is you have a greater revelation. He says, you've got the oracles of God, meaning the Old Testament. He says, basically, you've been told more about this. So you should know more than anyone that you need the circumcision of the heart, not just the external stuff. The benefit isn't that you're protected by default. The benefit is that you know how to actually be protected. The second lot of rejections are about God's righteousness. And we've talked about God's righteousness over these weeks, this sense of God doing what he ought to do. God being just and fair always in how he acts. And they basically say, well, Paul, if God can judge us because of our sins and therefore show that he's a just and fair judge, then we're doing God a favor. And God shouldn't tell us off for doing him a favor. That's not saying we're helping God. No, we're doing something good for him. We're allowing him to show his rightness and his judgment by doing stuff wrong so he can show that. Therefore, we shouldn't get in trouble for that. And Paul basically, his answer literally is, that's ridiculous, that's obviously wrong, I'm not going to bother explaining why, and you all deserve condemnation if you say that. He says, it's so absurd to say that, he says, I'm not even actually going to deal with it. Of course God is righteous, and of course it is right and just that he judges you. God cannot be other than right and justice and just in how he acts. And then from verse 9 onwards to uh, verse 20, he basically is beginning to sum up, to wrap up from all the stuff he said from the beginning of from chapter 1, verse 18. So all the stuff we've seen about the revelation of the wrath of God. He's bringing it to a close, kind of showing that every person is under sin. Verse 9, he says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. He's saying the Jews aren't protected by having the law or by having circumcision. Everybody, Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, every person is under sin. And as those under sin, we receive the revelation of the wrath of God. And then to really seal the deal, he puts together this whole string of quotes from the Old Testament. Quotes speaking about the fact that no one is righteous before God. No one lives as they ought to. And what's really interesting, if you go back to the Old Testament... Read where all these different quotes come from. All of them are about either the wicked or about the enemies of God. And here, Paul is applying them to these Jewish believers in Rome. He's subtly saying that you look down on the wicked, you look down on the enemies of God, but actually you are just as bad, you are just as guilty before God. He's saying, this is you, this is everyone. He says, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He's saying it's categorical. All are unrighteous. All are under sin. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. You see it in their speech, he's saying. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths of ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. You see it in violence, speech and violence, are two of the kind of most primary, uh, most talked about sins, especially in the Old Testament. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. In the Old Testament, the fear of God is the, the expression which talks about the right response to God. This is the ultimate accusation. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no right response to God. And he says, now we know that whatever the law says, whatever the Old Testament says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. He's saying, you Jews in Rome who are reading this, you know the law is yours. It was given to you. It speaks to you. These texts, he's saying, are about you. They're there to make it clear. They're there to seal the deal. They're there to stop any objections and any protestations. And he says they're there so the whole world may be held accountable to God. He means if this is true, even of the Jewish people, who've been given all these benefits by God, then how much more is it true of every single human being who has ever lived on earth? All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And the very final nail in the coffin that he puts in before he gets to the good news. End of this argument that's been like two and a half chapters, it's 64 verses or something, about the revelation of God's wrath. That final light going off so everyone is plunged into darkness. He says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, in God's sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. All are under sin. All Paul says are guilty and no one can be justified, can be declared not guilty through the law. The law and doing good cannot save, they cannot help, they cannot solve the problem. And why is that? It's because actually through the law comes knowledge of uh, sin. You read the law and it doesn't help save you. But read the law and it does help condemn you. Read the law, read how God expects us to live in the Old Testament and you suddenly realize I've got a major problem. When we measure ourselves up against God's standards, we realize not only can it not save me, but actually it's just condemning me. I've not lived this way. I cannot live up to these standards. It shows us our need for him. You and I and our friends and neighbors and colleagues and family and children are all under sin. We are all guilty before the living God, all under the wrath of God and so all desperately, desperately in need of God breaking in desperately need and the power of god for salvation found in the gospel and nothing external can do that no amount of church attendance no amount of knowledge of the bible no amount of praying no amount of doing good things and serving at church it's all just like putting a lipstick on a pig only only the circumcision of our hearts by the spirit can really do that and next week paul as it happens, both our Paul and the Apostle Paul will explain to us how that works. Will explain to us what Paul talks about us. But if you're here today and you've not experienced that, don't bother waiting until next week. <laughs> you've heard enough to know that you cry out to God and ask him to do that for you. And if you want to know more, come and find us at the end. We'd love to speak with you, tell you more, to pray with you. If so I can ask the band to head back up, please. That key statement, Paul says... He says, no one is a Jew, or we could say Christian, no one is a Christian who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Christian is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. Friend, has your heart been circumcised by the Spirit? Or are you relying on external things to save you from the wrath of God? Do you love God? And hate sin? Do you desire to live his way and hate it when you battle and struggle to do that? Do you long to worship him and love him above other things? And does it break your heart when you see people pouring out their love and their affection to things down here, the created, rather than to the creator? If so, then today's a the day to give thanks that God has worked in your heart, even though you were utterly undeserving and has transformed you from the inside out. If not, then today is a day to cry out to Jesus, to take hold of his promise that he will come and save anyone who calls on his name and to ask him to do that in your heart. And as we think about mission, we need to think, have our friends experienced this? Have they experienced the circumcision of their heart? And if not, is that what we're calling them to? How do we think of mission? Do we think of it just as, I just want them to come to church with me and be there a few times and to read a bit of the Bible and store up some credit with God? Or do we see they, like we, need a total and utter transformation? And we can't do that. Only Jesus can do that. And our job is to keep telling them of the incredible love of God that though we deserve all this stuff we've been talking about, actually what he wants to give us is the transformation of our hearts and the saving from his wrath. Come so I want us to stand. We're just going to take some time to respond. We're going to worship together in a song, just give some time for God to speak to us uh, in different ways. He might be speaking to us, challenging us. Then Sam will lead us as we take bread and wine together, a way of remembering what God has done for us, that actually all this awful situation we're talking about should be what we get, but actually in Jesus, we are saved, we are free from it. So please do stand if you want to help us engage with God. Let me pray for us, and then we'll hand to the band. Father God, we do stand before you, recognizing that we are people who sinned against you. And so what we deserve, actually, is to be under your wrath. But we thank you so, so much that you're the God who so loved you. Prefer to put your wrath on your son than you put on us. You prefer to crush him than to crush us. You prefer to abandon him than abandon us. And that today there is a way open for us to come. And Lord God, we recognize that nothing external can save us. No amount of church attendance, no amount of prayers or reading the Bible, or anything else can do it. But we know that you have promised that you will work in our hearts. That you will save us, you will protect us, you will rescue us and we cry out to you. And we say today, please Lord, work that truth deep into our hearts. But we need to give thanks for that. Help us to express deep thanks for that. Or actually, we need to cry out for you to save us, God. Help us to do that. And help us to be men and women who carry this incredible message of the God who loves, the God who saves, who are motivated and passionate and equipped to reach men and women and children around us, that many people will experience this wonderful transformation and come into life with you. Pray, We pray, Lord, come and help us with that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.